Good afternoon, Storehouse. Please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11 Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, There is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McKellen. Uh, In the event that you didn't get to catch Emma, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians. We're looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Uh, While you open or load your Bible, let me just give you a couple of updates. The first one is our community groups. For us here at Storehouse McKellen, community groups are vital. They are the primary avenue for discipleship and care in our church. And so if you're not in one, let me encourage you to get connected to one, especially as the summer approaches. That's when our groups and leaders take some time off, get some get some respite. Uh, but in addition to that, if our days for community groups don't match up with your schedule, we do have men and women's ministry available that meet pretty much monthly. You can see all of that on the website, storehousemccallan.com. Uh, for now, let's dig into our time. All right. Well, I don't know where you were. I don't even know if you were born, but January 1st, 2000 was also known as the Y2K Day. It was also known as the Y2K Millennium, and it brought a great deal of concern and fear uh, in the months leading up to this date. Everything from the notion of computers and data programs shutting down to to banks and digital hardware probably being erased, everything was at an all-time high alert. I remember my brother worked at the county courthouse as a computer engineer, and the days leading up to, to January 1st, he was like at the courthouse for two days before, two days after, and he was stressing out because they weren't sure what was going to happen in light of Y2K. At the same time, religious prophets, and I use that very, 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 very loosely uh, with uh, quotations, right? Religious prophets predicted that our world would even take this great shift and go back into the Middle Ages. Maybe you heard some of those rumors. It seems as though every few years there are individuals that surface to proclaim the end of the world through everything from scientific predictions, false prophecies, and films such as 2012's 2012, which showcased devastating events, 
uh, and uh, John Cusack. Uh, conversations that were essentially inspired by the Mayan calendar that marked December 21st, 2012, as the end of the great cycle. And people bought it. And then we made a movie about it. Additionally, many religious and cultic leaders have predicted the return of Christ in pretty predictive or pretty creative ways throughout the centuries. You don't need to go very far. All you need to do is Google predictions for the end of the world, and you'll see this great list of individuals over the centuries who produced uh, all of these predictions on the return of Christ. In the end, none of these times or seasons came to fruition for one simple reason. Here it is. No one knows. That's why it didn't come to fruition. No one knows. And today's text is a continuation of what we saw last week from Paul on the return of Christ. Only today, he shifts his focus to the other side of the same coin known as the day of the Lord. Last week, we considered how future glory shapes present godliness. And today is similar as we consider our future reality shaping our present Readiness. Let me say that one more time. Our future reality shapes our present readiness. So let me pray, and then we'll dig into 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. God, as we begin, um, thank you for allowing us to gather. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for the cooler weather. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for those who are visiting. God, as we examine your word this afternoon, would you give us clarity as we seek your truth and not ours? Would you give us comfort? Because there are many who are struggling and suffering, Lord. Lord, would you give us conviction over our sin this afternoon? And finally, would you help change us as we repent, as we turn away from sin and something else that we place our trust in and look to Jesus? May all of this be governed by your grace and your grace alone. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. To give you a little bit of context, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and part of last week, last week we closed chapter 4, but to give you a little bit of context, Paul has been addressing both the return of Christ and this time known as the day of the Lord for two primary reasons. He's trying to provide the Thessalonians with comfort and awareness. Last week, in chapter 4, he began by writing, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Meaning that Paul and his team didn't want the Thessalonians, or by way of the Spirit, you and I, to walk ignorantly about what is to come. The Thessalonians were curious, they were concerned about the return of Jesus, as many believers they knew were dying. And they were unsure of what was going to happen. They were unsure for themselves. Further, Paul brings about awareness, not only so that they would be comforted, but so that they would be ready for when this day arrives. And so that brings us to chapter 5. Paul writes about the day of the Lord. In a nutshell, the day of the Lord is a time that is distinct from the return of Christ. It's two sides of one coin. But it is distinct from the return of Christ. Where the return of Christ is his second coming to claim his bride, the church, the day of the Lord is judgment. And just as the Bible isn't shy about the beauty of Christ's return, the Bible is also not shy or unclear about the day of the Lord either. 
So I want to consider a couple of texts so that we have a little bit of awareness and context of what the Bible does say about the day of the Lord. For instance, Amos chapter 5 goes on to say, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Likewise, Ezekiel 30, For the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time for doom for the nations. The Old Testament doesn't shy away from it, and neither does the New Testament. Consider 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, similar to language that Paul uses. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's really heavy language. The day of the Lord is, uh, is pretty heavy. It's pretty devastating. And so this is what Paul is now addressing in 1 Thessalonians 5. And so the first thing that he wants to remind the Thessalonians, the first thing that we are to be reminded of, is that when it comes to the day of the Lord, this will be a day that is unforeseen. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. Concerning the times and seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul uses the phrase times and seasons to allude to the day of the Lord. And he uses the imagery of a thief in the night to describe how quickly or unforeseen or sudden it will be. Now, I don't know about you, but historically, the problem with thieves is that they do not announce their arrival. In the same, someone laughed like, I never thought of that. Right. In the same way, the day of the Lord is a day or a time. It's something that will be unforeseen and sudden. That's why Paul uses this imagery. Additionally, this particular imagery of a thief in the night is used to describe those who are unaware. Those who are unaware of the day of the Lord are going to be caught off guard. In other words, because it's sudden, because it's a thief, if you've ever had anything stolen from you, all of a sudden it's a surprise because you weren't expecting it. Those who do not know Jesus, those who do not know of the day of the Lord, will experience that surprise, we can call it. At the same time, though he's beginning to talk about the day of the Lord, Paul is encouraging them. He's not trying to trip them out. He's encouraging them. When he goes on to say, you have no need to have anything written to you, or for you yourselves are fully aware, he's not being insensitive and he's not being dismissive of their concerns. Paul is simply confident in them because of their relationship with Jesus. And so this entire section is one giant contrast. Those who are going to be surprised versus those who will not be. Those who are children of light versus those who are of the darkness. Paul is providing contrasts and imagery so that we would be able to make this distinction of who he's talking about and the kind of surprise they won't experience and the other, kind of, the other individuals that he's talking about that will be surprised by it. So for Paul, although this day is unforeseen, it's not coming with uncertainty. So that's the first thing Paul tells us. This day will be unforeseen. It will be unpredictable. I was talking to one of the guys earlier this, uh, this afternoon, and as we were working through uh, the notes a little bit, he said, man, this day is going to be as unpredictable as Texas weather. Exactly. 
All right? That's exactly what it will be like. So the day of the Lord, first thing, is that it will be unforeseen. Secondly, Paul tells them that the day of the Lord will be unavoidable. Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When Paul writes that there will be, or that there are people saying that there will be peace and security, most commentators agree that this was more than likely a political slogan that was being spread in Thessalonica. And the idea of this message is meant to convey trust in something else other than what God has revealed. And so when it comes to those who do not know Jesus, when it comes to the day of the Lord, why are they going to be caught off guard? Well, it's not only because the day is unforeseen, but because their trust has been in something else. Their trust will have been in worldly hope, political candidates, governments, worldly gain, worldly value, personal pleasures, worldly possessions. The problem is that the day of the Lord will come suddenly and destructively. It will be unavoidable. And all of the treasures gained by a world of sin will be lost. All of the hope gained and valued as a result of trust in the world will be lost and meaningless. Because when this day comes, and once it starts, no one can stop it. This is why Paul uses the imagery of a woman in labor. When it comes to labor pains, once they start, they can't be stopped. And so that's what ultimately the imagery that Paul is giving. That once this starts happening, it is inescapable. It is unavoidable for those who don't know the Lord. Thirdly, in this section, Paul says that the day of the Lord will be unsurprising. He reminds the Thessalonians that although this day is unforeseen, Although this day is unavoidable, this day should not be a surprise to Christians. This day should not be a surprise to Christians. Moving on to verse 4, Paul goes on, but you, right, so there's that first distinction, right? He says when he says them, he's talking about those who don't know the Lord. And then he switches his attention specifically to the Thessalonians. But you are not in darkness, brother, for that day to surprise you like a thief, why should it not be a surprise to Christians? Because believers do not live in darkness. The Word of God has become a lamp to our feet, which means we do not live ignorantly. We have left the darkness through faith in Jesus. The day of the Lord may be devastating, but we don't stand in dread because we belong to Jesus Christ. In addition to that, because this day will not be a surprise for the believer, it does not mean that you and I do nothing. In fact, it is because this day will not be a surprise to you and I that we act now, proclaiming the good news of salvation that is offered to sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. It is because as believers, we are aware of what is to come, all the more reason for you and I to examine our hearts and express the greatest message of hope to those who do not know Jesus. Therefore, although we are informed, we're also living urgently. Though this day is unsurprising, we are also expectant and eager. The day of the Lord brings the perspective of future reality to our present 
readiness. Because this day will be unforeseen, because this day will be unavoidable, and because it will not be surprising to believers. Next, Paul transitions from unpacking readiness or expectation to exhortation. Exhortation is like a strong encouragement. There's some correction. There's even push when it comes to exhortation. And this is found in verses 5 through 8. In this section, Paul is now moving uh, into application for readiness. If verses 1 through 4 give us clarity about what is to come and that you and I are to be ready, verses 5 through 8, Paul gives us the application of readiness. And once more, he does so by way of contrast. He's going to contrast two kinds of people, children of the light and children of the darkness. Paul goes on, beginning in verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. We'll pause it right there. Once more, Paul writes for you, making it clear that he's talking about them. He's speaking directly to the Thessalonians. Right? He's speaking to believers, not unbelievers. And he goes on to tell them, you are children of light. The idea of being children of light is meant to show uh, what it means to be in Christ, that they have a relationship with Jesus, that the Christian no longer belongs to the darkness, but to the light of Christ. And so for the Christian, for you and I, this means at least three things. One of the things it means is that we are repentant. To be a child of the light, to be a child of the day, means that we are repentant. God has revealed our sin and darkness to us. And in our repentance, we have left ignorance and we have sought light through God's word. It means that you and I are reconciled to God through Jesus, meaning that at one point we were cold, we were estranged, we were enemies of God. Now we are sons and daughters. Now we are warm toward God, and we are in relationship with him. It means that as Christians we are regenerated, that we have been given new hearts, through the Holy Spirit. New hearts mean new life. New life means new desires. And new desires mean new responses to God. That's what it means to be a child of the light, to be a child of the day. Because those who are in darkness, by contrast, do not know God. They walk in ignorance. They seek and savor the pleasures of this world. They live in unbelief. They are spiritually drunk, so to speak. They are not sober-minded. They are unaware. They embrace rebellion and unrighteousness toward God. So there's the contrast. Paul says that as children of light, here's the encouragement. We must first be awake. In other words, we must be watchful and prayerful, aware of what's going on around us and why the world is the way that it is and resistant to lies, temptation, and embracing sin around us. Here's the problem in the church. Many Christians are asleep. 
In other words, they're hardly responsive to the challenges of our times, openly compromising to the conviction of the gospel in order or for the sake to embrace everything from politics, pleasure, and ignorance. As a result, too many Christians are asleep in their faith so that when there is threat of attack, whether it is spiritual or cultural, they lack the power to prevail. They have no idea how to actually engage it because they have been asleep. And that's the strong exhortation that we are getting from Paul in this text. Are we really that entertained by sleep? You see, a knowledge of the future, a knowledge that you have been given, that has been revealed to you by God, you see, a knowledge of the future reality shapes our present readiness. If being uh, awake means being watchful and prayerful, are we praying for our parents? Are we praying uh, for our parents as they raise their kids? Are we praying for our children as they're walking among the world around us? Our pastors, our church planners, missionaries, neighbors, friends, family. You have a knowledge of what is to come. You have a knowledge of why things are the way they are. And you also know that just because they are the way that they are doesn't mean that it should be that way. Are you ready to push darkness back when our culture embraces and accepts the normalcy of sin right now? Too many Christians are entertained by their own understanding so that when danger lurks, they're totally unaware They're caught by surprise because they've been asleep. It's similar to the image and picture that we got between Jesus and Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's leading up to Jesus' arrest. Jesus takes Peter and a couple of other disciples, and he's going to go pray, and Jesus tells Peter, sit here and pray for me. And in Matthew 26, we see that Jesus comes back to the disciples and he finds them sleeping. And Jesus says to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? In other words, he's telling Peter, not not even one hour could you stay with me. Watch and pray. This is Jesus' exhortation to Peter. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. When you and I are asleep, we're all the more enticed into temptation. Charles Spurgeon on this verse goes on to say, those who ought to have been watchmen and to have guarded the field slept. And so the enemy had ample time to enter in scattered tares among the wheat. As Christians, We are to be watchful, prayerful, awake. Awake in our families, awake in our community, awake amongst our friends, 
we are to be awake. Secondly, Paul goes on to say, as children of light, we are not only to be awake, but also alert. The word that he uses here is sober-minded. The idea of sober-mindedness means to have sound judgment, that we're not walking in a haze, and that we're not enticed by the values and glories of this world. And in this section, Paul tells them to be sober twice, which gives us the clue that perhaps this was a struggle for the Thessalonians. And the problem with not being sober-minded, at least for the Thessalonians, and even to us, is that those who aren't Christians, non-believers, can't tell the difference. They can't tell the difference in terms of you being a Christian and not. That's why being sober-minded is so important here. And so Paul continues, he goes on to tell them that they're unable to make these distinctions. And so because uh, that we are to be alert, he goes on in uh, in verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Instead of being alert, instead of being sober-minded, Christians lack sound judgment. Christians, they're lacking discernment. Let me just say one other thing. It's not just those things that they lack because maybe they're enticed or or enamored by the world. Specific to conversations I've had the last four and a half weeks here. Many Christians in our church, instead of being alert, are apathetic. Apathy comes as a result of many things. One of the things that I can pick up from our conversations is ingratitude. And when a Christian is apathetic and is walking in ingratitude, they're unable to distinguish God's grace or guidance. Therefore, as a result, ingratitude invites bitterness. Bitterness breeds a hardness of hearts. One theologian goes on to say, to be drunk spiritually is to imbibe too much of the world's way of looking at things and not enough of the way God views reality. To be intoxicated with the world's wine is to be numbed to feeling any fear in the present of a coming judgment. That's how many Christians are walking right now. And so if we're saying, man, we need to be awake, we need to be ready, if we're going to encourage one another, then pray for hearts to be broken so that they would be binded only by God's grace. Finally, this is verse 8. As children of the light, we are to be armed. Here, Paul uses the imagery of the breastplate and helmet of a soldier in order to convey The same way a soldier gears up for battle, a Christian is to do the same every day. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, there it is, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I don't think this is on the notes, but one dead theologian says, the life of Christians is like perpetual warfare. He, referring to Paul, would have us, therefore, be diligently prepared and on alert for resistance. You see, it is one thing to say no to sin in which you and I have the capacity to do, the capability to do, as a result of the Spirit residing in us. But that's not the only thing we have the capability of doing. We have the capability to cultivate faith, love, and hope in order to be guarded, in order to avoid sleep and stumbling. 
And so when Paul gives the breastplate and the helmet, here's what he's saying. That when it comes to the breastplate of, of faith and love, the breastplate on a soldier protects vital organs, such as the heart. And this is important because you and I give our hearts over to what we value, what we treasure, and what we love. Therefore, when it comes to faith and love, our hearts have been made new. Therefore, we guard our hearts by devoting ourselves to God's word and prayer and training ourselves in righteousness, exercising our faith in obedience to God. I've given you this analogy before, and I'll do it one more time, especially if you're new. So I've given the analogy of when it, or the story of when it comes to plants, Right? In my office, I have these fake plants, and I love them because I don't have to water them, right? And which means if I leave them there for a year, when I come back after a year, they're going to look exactly the same. It's awesome, okay? Right? And then there are real plants. I have a friend. Her name is Destiny. She's a scientist. And Destiny does all of these things with real plants, and they grow, but she's not really doing anything intentional. She's just doing what you're supposed to do. She's watering them. She's giving them food. She like turns them toward the sunlight. She has this like red light to give them all sorts of exposure. Whatever, man. But they're growing. Right? Here's the point. Too many times, Christians treat their faith like fake plants. We're just going to leave it in the background. And when stuff hits the fan... We're going to get angry. We're going to get discouraged. We're going to push back. We're going to grow in rebellion because why isn't our faith working? You left it alone. You didn't do anything with it. You've been doing nothing with it. Like you were cool having the helmet of salvation, but the breastplate was too heavy. In addition to that, when it comes to the helmet, the hope of salvation, it protects a soldier's head. Yes, but specifically their brain. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, when it comes to our brain, this is uh, what we know to be true. This is who we are. This is who God is. What Jesus has done. What Jesus will do. This is us knowing. That's that knowledge that has been revealed to us. Have you ever had a concussion? I've had several, and every time, right, like when the EMTs come to me, they would say something like, who are you? Do you know where you are? What did you do? And so they're asking me questions about, do I know who I am? Do you know what you were doing? Do you know how you landed on the floor? Right? Same way, when it comes to a helmet, you're going to get rocked by life. You're going to get rocked by trials and hardship. You're going to get rocked by suffering and struggles. And knowing that you have knowledge of what God has revealed to you and brothers and sisters, some of the most vital questions that we ask is, who are you? Do you know where you're at? What's going on? How can I help you? Make sure that you stay on the same track. The helmet is rooted in God's word because it brings remembrance and assurance in the midst of God's word or in the midst of trial, hardship, and confusion. See, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians as the Spirit exhorts you and I right now to be alert, to be awake, and to be armed. I was meeting with one of the guys earlier this week, and he said something really, really, really insightful. At least I thought so. We were talking specifically about the breastplate and the helmet. He goes on to say, 
I tend to think that I'm good at putting my armor on when I'm at church or community group, but I rarely put it on outside of that. That's the way many Christians live. That when it comes to church, praying before you eat your salad and uh, community group, hey man, let's do it, let's all put the armor on. And then you step outside of those contexts, you step outside of those spaces, and all of a sudden it's like, what armor? And so we walk unaware, we walk asleep, we walk unprepared. And if it's not that, too many Christians wear only one piece of gear. Some really love the helmet, don't put on the breastplate. So the heart goes unprotected. Therefore, they're enticed. Therefore, they're lured. Therefore, they're swayed. Therefore, they swing to and fro. Any kind of doctrine will sweep them. Some wear the breastplate, but no helmet. And they say things like, well, God will understand. Right, yeah, God understands your sin and he hates it. Right? And he hates sin. And we'll tell ourselves all sorts of things so that we can justify our behavior. This is why Paul essentially uh, exhorts them. That if we're going to be ready for this day, if we're going to be proclaiming the good news to those who don't know Jesus, because this day is coming, as children of light, not as children of darkness, but as children of light, we are to be awake, we are to be alert, and we are to be armed. Finally, Paul concludes this section with encouragement for the Thessalonians. This is verses 9 through 11 so that they, in turn, would encourage one another. As he has provided an explanation about expectancy and even provided a strong exhortation, Paul did so because he is absolutely convinced about the Thessalonians standing before God. So he's not trying to bring them dread. He's trying to bring them delight because he's so confident in what God has done for them. And so the first thing that Paul does is that he encourages them by telling them that God did not destine them for wrath, meaning they've escaped God's wrath. If you're a Christian, you too have escaped God's wrath. And in verse 9, here's what Paul goes on to say. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, that are alive, we might live with him. And so Paul goes on to say, hey, this destiny, the, the fact that you've escaped wrath, this was made for you by God in eternity past, and there's nothing you did spectacularly to receive this mercy. Instead, you received this mercy through the merit of faith alone in Christ alone. The day of the Lord, as devastating as it is, is not a day of dread for the believer because of God's redemptive work for them, because they belong to him and will be with Jesus. Whether it's dead or alive, we might live with him. Paul is so convinced by this, not because they are nerds and they have all the right answers. They lived in an absolutely pagan culture. There was no Christian influence. They didn't have Johnny Mac or John Pipes. They didn't have the ESV. They didn't have any of those resources. They had dead philosophers. And Paul and his team show up to preach the gospel to a people who had never heard the message before. And so as that happens, Paul sees that the gospel has taken root in their lives and fruit in their lives. 
He saw them respond to the gospel. He saw the fruit of the gospel in their lives. That's why he's absolutely convinced you've escaped wrath, not because you're awesome, but because by God's mercy on you. In addition to that, this is exactly what Paul encourages them with in the first chapter. So this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 5. Paul says, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And check it, with full conviction. So they heard it, they accepted it, and they were transformed by God. And Paul is saying, I saw it happen. I saw fruit in your lives, or I saw you respond to the gospel. Same chapter, verse 9, he goes on to say, I've heard how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us, there's a word again, from the wrath to come. Paul is like linking back to the first chapter saying, I saw this in you. I saw you respond to the gospel. I saw the gospel take root in your lives and I've seen the fruit of it in your lives. That's why he's absolutely convinced that they've escaped wrath through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. See, to Paul, he's not saying that they're better than anyone else. He just knows they're repentant. And their lives, their fruit, is evidence of this transformation. Their fruit is evidence of their faith. And Paul is just commending them on that. And so though they've escaped wrath, this news also leaves us with the reality that there will be many who will experience God's wrath. People, especially Christians, don't like talking about that. There are many Christians who are like, no, I just want to talk about God's love because God is love. And that is true, but God is all-encompassing. He is love and just. We must be really cautious. We must be very cautious not to idolize one attribute of God over the rest. God is a God of wrath. And if we're surprised by that, then let us be reminded by the cross of Christ where his wrath was poured out onto him in our place for our sin. You might even push back and say, well, the thing about it is I get it. We need to have evangelistic efforts. People aren't going to believe in wrath. You know, I say a day like this is coming, they're not going to believe in wrath. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. See, people... Particularly, let me, say, let me say it this way. Paul addresses this with the Romans. He says, people know about God. They just suppress the truth about God. God has made himself known. They just reject him. And they embrace their rebellion. So people know. And you might say, well, how? How, how, how do you know that they know? Because you were like them just as much. You were at one point a child of darkness. You were at one point dead in your sin. This is where our evangelistic fervor comes in. We must tell our city, our friends, our family about the goodness of God for sinners through faith in Jesus. As a result of having said everything that Paul did, he concludes this section the same way he concludes last week's, by saying, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
The word to describe encourage and building means to comfort and exhort. It's meant to describe coming alongside those who are in weakness, those who are experiencing difficulty, those who are experiencing doubt, those who are spiritually fatigued, so that they would continue in the faith. Sometimes it's a strong word. Not to tear them down, but to present honesty so that they would be built back up and let's go. As Christians, we encourage and build one another up in order to grow spiritually. In order to grow spiritually so that we would guard one another from isolation, idolatry, and other sins that keep us from God. And so when Paul concludes here, just as you were doing, it's almost like he's coming back to chapter 1. Hey, the way you started, keep going, right? In the beginning of this series, we saw that the Thessalonians had been so captivated by the gospel, they'd been so captivated by Jesus, that they were just uh, in community with one another, encouraging one another, serving one another. Paul talks a whole great deal about this in chapter 2, and here he goes on to say, just as I saw you doing, just as you did Keep doing that. Right? At the end of chapter 4, don't be uninformed. Okay, so now they're not uninformed. Now they're not ignorant. Now, encourage one another. Because there are those among you that are spiritually weak, that are experiencing difficulty, that are in doubt, that are experiencing spiritual fatigue. There are those around you that are apathetic right now. There are those around you that just feel bandaged and beat up. There are those around you who are a little confused. You need to encourage one another. There are those who are isolated. There are those who have believed the lie, Jesus and something else is what brings me great joy. Paul is saying, you need to go after them and encourage them with the truth of the gospel. We have escaped wrath by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. May we encourage one another with this truth. See, as believers, we don't need predictions, patterns, or programs to configure the return of Christ in the day of the Lord because only God knows. It is only God who knows. This is a mystery in that it hasn't been revealed to us. It has been kept from us. And that shouldn't discourage us because there's plenty that has been revealed, such as the beauty of Christ, a new heart through redemption, and the certainty of things to come that shape how we live today. Therefore, let me just encourage you, do not walk ignorantly or in the darkness. Do not live arrogantly or asleep. Rather, stand ready daily for the Lord Jesus Christ himself will descend from the heavens one day. We must live today as though Christ died yesterday, ascended this morning, and is coming back tonight. We must urgently preach the beauty of God's gospel to a world that lives in darkness. We must build one another up because the world can be and is defeating and encouraging or discouraging. We must stand on our tippy toes, expectant of our Lord's return. So as we close up, Christian, are you asleep? Are you drunk? Are you not better, but are you distinct from the world? 
The gospel that saves us tells us to be uh, tells us to be ready by cultivating a life of love and righteousness. What is it that you need to bring before the table? What is it that you need to bring before the Lord today? When I ask if you're asleep, are you unaware of what's going on around you? Are you drunk? Are you unable to discern well? Are you unable to see clearly? Or is there someone speaking into you? Are you isolated? Are you apathetic? As you go back out onto the world in uh, 30 minutes, is there a distinction between you and the world? What do you need to bring before the Lord this afternoon? And if you're not a Christian, love that you're here, because you didn't have to be here with us. But here's what the Bible says. You are estranged. You are not a friend of God. You are an enemy to God. You are dead in your sin. However, God has made a way for you to come and know Him through faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So the same invitation that is extended to the Christian of repentance, the same invitation is given to you. Repent and place your trust in Jesus. Church, may the reality of the future shape our readiness today. Let's pray. God, once more, we are thankful to be able to gather and to examine your word. Lord, if we're honest, there's a lot of things that we can put on the table. One of them is that the only reason we have access to you is because of Jesus' work for us. So this afternoon, may we praise you and thank you for Jesus. On the other hand, when we consider the beauty of the return of Christ and the devastation of the day of the Lord, though we can find comfort, if we're honest, oftentimes we walk asleep. Oftentimes we walk unalert. And oftentimes we walk unarmed. Therefore, Lord, would you bring about comfort to the weak by your spirit right now? Would you bring about comfort and grace for those who are struggling? God, would you bring about conviction and change for those who are in sin? all for the sake of seeing the beauty of Jesus because that is what informs how we live today.